0: Scripture reading this morning is from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And they sent him to some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. Um, It is a joy to be here with you guys today. I I will say that everything that um, Dave said about me is absolutely true. I am his spiritual father. I have invested in him more than anybody else in the world. And um, he owes a lot to me. And uh, so I'd like you to give me a big hand this morning. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, uh, I've been trying to tell Dave for quite some time now that he should call me his spiritual father. And everything that happens up here on this stage today, saying that I've invested in him this much and everything he says is because of me, sounds a lot like he just needs to admit it and uh, come under this wing of spiritual covering. Um, You ready, Dave? Today, I'd like you to come up here and, and just come right under here, Dave. I'll just pray over you. No? Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I cannot tell you how thankful I am for, uh, for this church and for being a part of redemption as a, a whole has really changed my life. Uh, was a part of uh, planting a church in inner city uh, Phoenix. And our hearts were to bring the gospel to a neighborhood that is poor. Um, it's the highest in crime and poverty and uh, prostitution sex trafficking in all of Phoenix, um, and we just felt like, man, that's a good place for the church to go. Well, that meant a lot of sacrifice for my family and I um, as we planted there. We've, I've, I've been bivocational as a pastor, so I work another job and uh, to support my family. All of our elders are not staff. We are volunteers, and um, so it's been a huge blessing. And so you can imagine with that and then also being an independent church, there's some struggles that come along with that. But being adopted and brought into the Redemption Church family has been life changing for us Uh, to have the encouragement and support and the blessing of of the leaders that are there. Also, for them to take on some of the load of stewarding finances for us, when we came in, there was a big a big thing that took place. I don't know how this happened. We were going for about 12 years as a congregation, independent congregation in that neighborhood. And when Redemption and us started building relationship over the last five years, it became evident to us that we would uh, merge in with or be adopted by Redemption Church. There were three other churches that wanted to do the same thing. And in that whole three churches coming together together, to be Redemption Alhambra, a building was given to us, uh, a, a Lutheran church that was built in 1948. And so we've been now have a, our own property and we've been um, trying to see these three churches come together. It's been a crazy story. I still don't know how it happened except to say to God be the glory, right? Um, and so we're trying to see a church that's been you know, raised up there. We really do uh, desire to be a diverse community uh, because our community is diverse and so when you look out in uh, Redemption Alhambra uh, be praying for us uh, because of all the the cultures that are coming together we don't want to just be um, in the neighborhood we want to be of the neighborhood and in order to do that we have to reflect that neighborhood and so it's been an awesome thing for us to see I can't tell you what our predominant race is in our church we are very diverse and that's just been a joy to watch and god's been diversifying us even more so as you're praying for us as a church um then you can um you can say be praying for us that we would continue to grow in that way and also to meet the needs of our neighborhood um i I will say that because of the neighborhood preaching in in a very diverse neighborhood for me has been a great joy i came out of preaching in in extremely charismatic Uh, culture, you know, so I I get very loud and passionate and I I don't mean to scare you today but because we are family you have to love me whether you like my style or not. We all have family members that we're kind of embarrassed are a part of our family, you know, Um, and so I don't mind being that brother as long as you call me brother, you know. Tucson should understand that, you know, Arizona feels that way about you guys. Um, So, it's what? I mean we, we get along in that way. And so redemption uh you know kind of it brought me in embarrassed that I'm a part of the family, but you gotta love me. I'm 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 a brother. Uh so love me in that way. So if I get a little loud or passionate, just know you can amen. Okay, you can we like the dialogical preaching, that means I talk and you say amen back. I'm good with that. Um if not you can just stare at me. I'm used to it, okay? One thing that I'm just going to kind of expose a deep, dark secret in my heart. I really have had a deep desire to punch somebody as hard as I can and never been able to do that. Like, I'm not just talking about like, okay, go ahead and punch me. I'm talking about like full force out of anger to feel the pain, uh, to feel my fist go across somebody's face has been a, a dream of mine that I've never been able to. To do and if you've had that happen in your life you know probably why because I've had this discussion with other people and they have said that the feeling of punching somebody in the face is unmatched I've wanted to have that (laughs) take place and I'm talking about where you really connect you know that that thing is gonna knock them out they're on the ground but I've never had that mostly because I have a greater fear or, or a greater Affection for not being punched. You know what I'm saying. So I've always said, if I gotta punch somebody, I've gotta have be open to be punched back. And so I never got into that. I never got into that place. You know, I've seen them. I've agged them on. I've instigated fights, but I've never been in a fist fight myself because I learned quickly that I. This, this is what is, you know, needs to stay beautiful. And so um, I didn't want that to take place. And so I learned to talk my way out of fights. I learned to kind of debate people. I, I learned there's another way to fight now. Uh, it, it may sound a little bit of a uh, manipulative, but the reality is I learned that there is a, a uh, I, I i could even say a more violent way you 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 can fight somebody verbally and it could be even more painful in so many ways uh, and so I learned that, and even when people would get angry at me, I could talk my way out of that uh, out of fist fights, even though I wanted to feel that i I never went there and so let me give you kind of context to my life my mom and dad pastored all all of my life they're now missionaries in kuwait and they had six boys i'm one of six boys so inside of that even when you're thinking six boys and you never punched anybody in the face that's pretty miraculous right even if it's just your brother um and we never got in fistfights we would sit around in our family and our whole our, our brothers not our family my mom and dad hated this and we'd get in trouble but all the brothers would sit around and we would take out a bongo drum right and we would start you know and on beat we would do our form of battle rapping which is like a burn session kind of thing and we'd sit around and just rip on each other like who could come up with the best burn was like the be- yeah so we were doing this since we were young, right? We'd sit around and just, and the goal was who could make the other one cry, right? And so if you could make them cry and they would walk away crying, you won, right? And so you would go in there, you gotta kind of have to prep yourself knowing we're about to go into a burn session going, don't cry, don't cry. And then you would walk in and this is the statement we would say to each other, listen, somebody's walking out of here crying and it 's not going to be me today, right and so we'd start the drum would go, and then all of a sudden, one right after another we'd start ripping each other apart. Now this is ingrained into me since childhood, a part of something that quit tongue, the kind of working you know in that and so when i'm when i 'm growing becoming a pastor there's things if you can just imagine people say things to me, and I have to. I have to ask the Holy Spirit to slow my tongue down a little bit because I can say some very cutting things, not because even if I think it's funny, it's not always funny. Right. So I had I had a test of this when I had two interns in my house and they were they were trying to be young punks. Who thought they knew everything and, and they were ripping on me. Now there's a lot of things to rip on me, right? But then all of a sudden I could hear, they couldn't hear it. I could hear kind of the you know what I'm saying happening, and I'm like, okay, you wanna go there? And I could hear the, the drum beat going, and I said, listen, listen, do not, don't, don't go there. I, I, I don't want you to start coming at me because I'm gonna tell you this, somebody's leaving this room crying. And it's not going to be me, right? And they're like, yeah, right, no, pastor. Because they've only seen the pastoral side of me, right? And so they're going, well, someone's going to leave this room crying, and it's not going to be me. And they're like, no, do it. So they keep going and going. And I look at my wife. I'm like, I don't know what to do. I'm starting to feel this urge, you know. I, I want, I, and, and so I said, look, I'll say one statement about each one of you. Now, I'm not bragging about this. I would say one statement about each one of you, and I guarantee you both of you will leave here crying. And they said, do it. So I said, boom, boom, and they both left crying. This is not something I'm bragging about. I'm just saying, don't make me go there, right? So I've asked Stephen, "Do you got a drum, right?" Dave, get up here. You ready? No, I'm just get battle rap right here. No, it's not. A, it's not something to brag about. All I'm saying is that when you see the text that we just read today, you can understand that some people will take verb, will take words, and try to deconstruct somebody. They'll take words and enter into debates to try to trap people, to try to manipulate people, to try to catch them in a place where they can not just beat them They don't have to just punch them, right? But they're getting them to a place where they are trapping them, getting them caught, manipulating them. And what we're seeing here is Jesus is marching on the way to the cross, Right? But the the Sadducees, the Pharisees, the Herodians, which is kind of the, 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 the whole piece of the synagogue, how they come together, is going to trap Jesus. We just read this, right? But as we're going towards this, what we have to see is there's another way of destroying somebody inside of debate. The rules of fighting inside of debate are different, right? You don't want to lose your cool. You don't want to lose your emotions. You don't want to get carried away. So when you see somebody inside of debate, what they're trying to do is intellectually get that person to a place where they have no place to go and then anger comes out, right? Now, violence comes out. And if you, if you ever find yourself in a place where you've got somebody emotional and angry and violent, you know, right? You know you've won that debate. You've won that debate. But what we see in this as they're approaching Jesus is there's a lot more going on here than just them asking, should we pay taxes? And we've got to at least admit that, but we can only know that if we are kind of walking down the track of studying all of Mark. So let's take a minute to just kind of remember what, what are the things we've been learning as Redemption Church as we've kind of trekked through Mark, which I love preaching through books of the Bible for this very reason. It gives you such a greater context to understanding Scripture. What we've seen is from the very beginning of the book of Mark, Jesus has built all of his teachings around the kingdom of God. He's been proclaiming he is king. He's the one who is coming. He's the Messiah who's coming. He is king. And here's what his kingdom looks like. And so all the things you've seen Jesus doing are proclamations about what his kingdom is like. And it doesn't take very long for us to realize Jesus's kingdom is far different and opposed to the kingdoms of this world. That's why he starts rustling feathers pretty quickly. When he um, teaches about the kingdom of God, he shows how the kingdom of God is different than the kingdoms of this world. When he heals the sick, he's showing what his kingdom is like. When he casts out demons, he's showing what his kingdom is like. When he teaches parables, he's talking about, here's what my kingdom is like. He's been talking about this kingdom. He's been saying he is this king. But here's what I need us to to get to, right? For us to really understand why is this important that he's saying he's a king. We have to understand that the people of God have been waiting for a king, a Messiah to come for a long time. They've been yearning and and longing for it. And so for us to understand that place, I want us to put this picture in our mind just for a second. This has helped us at Redemption Alhambra to kind of... Feel that yearning. Now, I want you to picture in your mind a desperate woman. Now, I'm not talking about anybody in this room, okay, except for you, ma'am, but I will say um, that there is, uh, uh, there is this, this anticipation within a desperate woman who wants to be married so much so that every guy that passes by she cannot have a normal relationship with that guy because of her desperation to be married married she can't just have a healthy friendship why because she's constantly thinking is that the one is that the one is that the one And Every time she's with somebody she's looking and she's she's looking at their traits She's longing for somebody to come and all of her focus and all of her attention is drawn towards Could this be the one who could save me from my loneliness who could marry me who could make me happy could this be the one? right and then what ends up happening is every person that comes She has that expectation, destroys those relationships, but she also has an expectation of what that guy will look like, of who that will be and what he will do for her. So she's longing for this. So I want you to picture this long desperation, this waiting, this waiting, this waiting, somebody who's been waiting a long time, not just a few years, not just out of high school. I'm talking about a long time, whatever that is. Here comes a guy. Now this guy comes into the scene and from the very beginning he comes up to this desperate woman and walks into the scene. And and this woman sees this man coming into the scene. And from the onset she's like, um, he doesn't fit any of my expectations. I can immediately see she's been desperate so long she can tell who fits and who doesn't, right? He doesn't fit my expectations, he doesn't talk the way I want him to talk, he doesn't look the way I want him to look, he doesn't act the way I want him to act. He's, he's just uncomfortable, but that guy, the one that you immediately know, that's not the one, comes into this desperate woman's life, walks in and says, hey girl, mm. I'm the man of your dreams girl. I'm the one you've been waiting for all of your life. And she's like getting grossed out. Even though she's desperate, she's not that desperate, right? And what happens is he gets down on his knees from the very first time they see him and says, Will you marry? And she's like, uh, there's only two options now. One is yes, yes. <laughs> which is not a viable option. Two is, how do I reject him? Do I just say no? And do I kind of say, hey, you're cute, but I just, I got friends that would befit you better. Do I let him down easy or do I totally reject him? Do I try and do all I can to destroy him and show him, you're nothing to me. See, this is the kind of yearning, if you will, for years, prophecies, the longings, of the Jewish people they've been waiting the people of God have been waiting and waiting and every prophet that comes it goes through their mind is that the one Every person that comes through the scene, all the, all the, 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 there's been ten or twelve even during the intertestamental period that come through that they're longing for. Is that the one? The Maccabean revolt, the Judah Maccabean, he's coming in. They think he's the one. There's all these different messiahs or quasi messiahs that they think are the one. So they're constantly thinking, John the Baptist, is that the one? Elijah is that the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? Is this the one? But then here comes Jesus and from the onset he says, "I'm the one." And then gets on his knees and says, "Repent. Turn from all other messiahs. Turn from all of the gods and follow me." And inside of that call to repentance, they're left with, "Do I follow him?" It's that clear or how do I reject him? Some reject him nicely others violently here's jesus who doesn't fit any categories of the messiah who doesn't fit any of what they've been longing for and expecting and he's continually marching towards i'm the king my kingdom has come but hear me on this the reason why he didn't fit because they wanted a king for sure they wanted a warrior, absolutely. They wanted someone to come in, conquer the government, overthrow the government, and, and establish the king. They wanted that, for sure. A priest, sure, maybe, if he wants to be spiritual, good. But a suffering servant who's predicting his death and, 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 and marching towards the cross, uh... That doesn't fit. No, absolutely not. That's why all the fighting from the disciples, can I be the greatest in your kingdom? You think they wanted to, to be the greatest in the kingdom of a suffering servant? Absolutely. They think he's marching. That's why last, for us last week, that's why this idea of him marching into Jerusalem and overthrowing the temple and, and, and making this big statement is huge for the disciples. Why? Because they think, he's doing it. He's doing it. So now, with all of that in mind, the first attack, because if you remember that the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the synagogue, the Herodians, they are plotting, They're, they're putting together a plan to destroy Jesus. But instead of first resorting to violence, let's resort to debate. Let's resort to trapping Jesus and trying to get him manipulated. If, if you could just picture with me, when I see this text, I'm going, they're picking me to go, right? That they're wanting someone to go in who's quick with their tongue, who's going to come up with perfect ways to manipulate Jesus to get him to say what he needs to say so that they can destroy. Him. So what happens? Well, we see in the first verse that they sent the Pharisees and the Herodians to trap him in his talk. That's verse 13. And they are, if you will, coming into the temple, setting their best trap. They were sent by the synagogue to do this. Herodians and Pharisees don't usually work together. So you know they have a common enemy, right? Jesus. Here they come. And it makes it very clear in verse 13. They're come to be trapped. So here's what I want you to do. What are they doing? Well, what they're doing is they are struggling to put Jesus in a category. And I want you to to write this down, if you will. We always will struggle to put Jesus and his kingdom in one of our categories. We want Jesus to be put in a clean category so that he can fit in and know our expectations That here is where he is and that way we can accept him because he fits in this category or we can reject him. So what they're trying to do is trap him and put him in one of their categories. Then what we see in verse 14, and I want you to look here, verse 14 shows that they start with some flattery. Notice the slickness of their talk. Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearance, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not, or should we pay them, or should we not? Notice how they start the conversation With flattery. You know they don't believe these things. You know what they're trying to do is to make Jesus comfortable with them. To find common ground with them so that they can what? Trap them. So if they're trying to trap them according to verse 13, what they're doing in the first part of verse 14 is setting the bait. They're setting the bait. They are flattering him. And notice what they say to him. They say some very interesting things. We know that you are true. We know you're true. What's the other thing? We know you don't care about others' opinions. We know you don't care about others' opinions. What's the other things? Uh, You don't care about how you look. You don't care about your appearance. Now, this could be flattery or an underhanded cut at the same time. You don't care about people's opinions and you don't care about how you look. And the last thing is you teach the way of God. Okay, they want, they want Jesus to know uh, we are friends, not foes. We're here to have a discussion with you. It's, let's start on common ground and let me ask you a question. I want, I want to know they asked this question, a carefully crafted question. Believe me, this was prepared. They knew what they were going to ask. And they said this, uh, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, one thing that you have to see in this question is that they're, they're not asking, should we pay taxes? There's, there's much Deeper of of what is being said here, but they're trying to start with this: Should we pay taxes? Because of the context in which they're in, they are forced to pay taxes to Caesar in a way that uh, uh, that uh, that they don't want. They're not in the positions of power, so they're trying to live within a government structure that they don't. So, what they're trying to ask Jesus is not: Should we pay taxes? What they're trying to ask him is are you a revolutionary? Are you a revolutionary or not? Revolutionary meaning if you're going to come in like the messiahs come in or the quasi messiahs if you look back in the history of how messiahs would come in they would come in and overthrow the government and establish their own system so that the people would be free from these taxes. What they want to know is are you a revolutionary? Now Jesus is hard to debate with uh, because not only is he able to, not only is he like the master at debate, but he's able to see the heart and intention of the people talking to him, right? It says that. He notices they're trying to trap him. He notices their hypocrisy, it says their inconsistencies he notices all of those things so he knows what they're trying to do he's not he's not taken away by their flattery but he also knows the way that he answers this question is going to put him in a category saying no don't pay taxes would say I'm here to start a revolt against the government and what we're here to do is overthrow the government, stop paying taxes. So if he says that, there will be people who will say, yes, he's here, but there will be a government that will go, we need to kill him. He's a revolutionary. But if he says no, then in their minds, they've caught him and he's admitted that he's just bluffing about this whole king and messiah thing. And that they shouldn't look at him as the Messiah because he's not here to overthrow the government. He's not here to do the revolt. And so what they're saying is if he doesn't say, if he says to pay taxes, he's shown his hand. And he's given away this idea that he's not the king because a king who's coming in is not just here to kind of save our individual lives. This is why we miss this because for us we think Well, this whole Christianity thing is just a private faith. But what Jesus had come to do as far as announcing the kingdom of God was this was at the center of public life. This affects the way that we should live inside of the government. It should affect the way we live as followers of Christ. This is not just a, we don't deal with those kinds of problems, so do what you want to do. The king that was coming was going to have a plan and a a way of eradicating poverty, hunger, and suffering. This work was going to be cosmic. It was going to be Powerful. And it is. But what we like to do, if we're honest, is do this very same thing. We love to simplify everything and put things in clean little categories. We love it. We love our clean categories with their oversimplifications. Now, there are things that are pretty simple there are things that are pretty simple and even when it comes to the gospel and you listen to the story of the gospel people talk about how the gospel is very simple you heard that before how simple it is God's love for us us loving him and loving others that's very simple even a child can understand it you'll hear people talk about the simplification of the God, how simple it is and listen I'm not arguing with that there is very clear and simple truths when it comes to the gospel but we also have to recognize this. Those clear and simple truths being lived out in the world that we live in are not as clear and simple. And we cannot push those into categories. And our tendency to put things in categories is seen all around us. And I'm, I'm going to do this as much as I can without making categories, right? My hope is to defend every category in here like Jesus, right? That's our hope. Because what we see here is in our country, people love to take Jesus and put him on their political platform, they love that. Isn't it amazing that when we have political conversations, you will have one person who's taking Jesus and say, I have no clue how a Christian could even think that. And on the other side of the debate, they're saying the exact same thing. I have no clue how a Christian could even think that. And so in their minds, they're going, there's no way somebody could be a Christian and stand on that political platform. So, what they've done in their heart and minds is they've assigned Jesus to a political party. They put him in a category. We take our single issues, our clean oversimplifications, and we we try to stuff Jesus into them. We try to get him on our side, in our issue, with our revolt. We need to be really careful that we don't lump Jesus and his kingdom in with our agenda. We need to be very careful with that. We are naturally passionate about issues in our, in our, in our society. We should be. We see so much destruction and sin, especially now with the the politics ramping up in our country. Everyone is taking a side here and trying to find a place. And I could take example after example of this, but isn't it amazing how inside of politics there's not a both and, it's an either or. Either you hate them or you're for them. There's no No room for disagreement and love. Either you're totally opposed to it, or you're totally for it. There's no room for, I'm not either. And this is what they're trying to do. And this is what the world around us loves to do to Christianity. And you can see this take place all around us. Church, especially, with the hot topics that are happening in our country right now. They're trying to say, this is what Christians believe about this. And often, if you feel like me, inside of these debates, there's things I agree with, and there's things that, yes, that are true about that. But that's not the heart. That's not the way the gospel even presents itself. That's not what Jesus would do in that scenario. And you see all these stands being made and Christians rallying around this. And it's even hard sometimes if we admit for us to find ourselves even calling ourselves Christians in this kind of climate. Because we're put in a category with everybody else. Do you believe this or do you not? Well, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the nuances of it. Let's work through this. No, do you believe this or do you not? They're trying to categorize and oversimplify. Look what Jesus does in the face of that kind of reality. I love how he does this. He refuses both the categories and creates a new category. I love this about Jesus. This kind of stuff... And my debate mindset. I just love it. I love how Jesus says, hey, do you have a coin? They're like, could you just answer the question? You get what I'm saying? Do you have a coin? I'll talk about this later, but notice Jesus doesn't even have a coin. He has to ask for one. Do you have a coin? And it says, they brought him one. So they had a coin, which is interesting because many of the people in that time believed carrying one of those coins around with them was like carrying a little idol with somebody else's image on it. Do you have a coin? And they brought him a coin. It's a denarii, basically a small day's wage, a very small amount of money. Think of it as like a kind of a, a quarter, if you will, just a small amount of money. And he brought it to him and he says, Whose likeness is on this? They said, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God. And I love the last part. And they marveled at him. Why did they marvel? Because he just destroyed both of their categories with one illustration. Drops the mic. And that's the end of the conversation. (laughs) I'm out. Jesus. Done. I love that. That is such, I mean, I love that. I love what takes place there. But why? Because what he does is says, bring me a denarii. He didn't have this in his own pocket. He says, bring it to me. And so they're carrying to him a coin and what does he say whose image is on this and you've got to see the significance of this because when he asks whose image is on this that word is the same word that we get from we're created in the image and likeness of God whose image whose likeness is on this what coin this is an image bearer of what and they say oh Caesar so what does he say give to Caesar what his image is on and give to God what his image is on. Amazing. Knowing this, that in that statement, he is confronting the idea that government has divine authority. This is a powerful statement because they believe that Caesar was divine and had divine authority. They believe that government could come in and save. And We can argue this back and forth, but I'm more and more convinced that there are many people who think if we hire the right person or vote in the right person, they're going to save the world. That they have divine powers that can come in and save this thing. There's this reality of this belief in the divine and the governmental authority saying that Caesar his image is on money and go ahead and give to him pay him what is his but give God what his image is on makes a powerful statement saying Caesar is not God government is not God Caesar is not God but notice what else he says money is not God either. Money's not God either. Money is not what bears the inerrant image of God on it. It is us. It is us who are the, made in the image and likeness of God. We are the image bearers of God. And money is not God. And government is not God. And what does he say? Render or pay back what they deserve. Give Caesar his money but don't give him his elite don't give him your allegiance don't give him your life don't give him your heart don't give him your allegiance in one statement he destroys both categories and creates a new one he just in one statement destroyed those who want to revolt against the government and at the same time is not saying that you should submit to them. He didn't say revolt, and he didn't say submit. He said something completely different. It's amazing what Jesus does in the midst of this, and in all of this statement, they marvel because they know what he has just done. He's deconstructed their whole argument and shown him, I didn't come to get your money. This is amazing. Because any government that comes in is in need of the taxes of their people to pay them. And what Jesus shows is I am a king without a coin. And I haven't come to get your money. I have come to pay your debt. You notice what's taking place here? I don't even have one of those coins. I don't have that money, and I have not come to collect your taxes. I have come to pay your debt. And the beauty of this text is that Jesus is king without a coin, and he's come to collect a debt. But that debt is not your money. It's that he's created you in his image and likeness, and you have Marred and sinned against the holy God, and you owe him the very thing in which bears his image. You owe him your life, but you cannot pay the debt in which needs to be paid, and your taxes are not what is dependent upon this. Jesus has come to pay the debt for his people. And in the pain of the debt, for his people, he has freed them to give to God what he deserves, which is what? All of my life. All of my allegiance. All that I have come all that I have, everything, there's, all of life is all for Jesus is a massive statement when you really understand it's not just about this and that and government and money. It's all of those things summed up in one life. My whole life is for Jesus. Notice that the gospel changes the way you interact with God and that you interact with the whole world around you. It creates a whole new category. Do I agree with the broken sinfulness of the things that I see in the world around me? Absolutely not. But does that take me out of not having to love them and serve them and be in their lives and interact with them? Absolutely not. Is it as simple as just knowing the truth when it comes to the gospel? Or is there a both and in a lot of statements? Does the gospel for you create whole new categories? And all your clean and simple oversimplifications are thrown out the window. And you have to not only render your whole life to God, but the way you interact with the world around you changes. That statement The reason they marveled was because he created a whole new category that they've never thought through. They're blown away. And listen, this isn't just common people. These are the teachers. These are the Herodians. These are the people who are smart. They're the ones marveling here. Because they don't have an argument back. Church, I pray with our lives as Redemption Church, what I absolutely love about this community across our state is the fact that it's really hard to put us in a simple category. It is. If you see the way we're interacting with politically hot topics, it's so different than kind of this just outspoken, truth-based people who just destroy everybody around them. And it is also so different than just kind of this socialized, love everybody, don't make any waves mentality. It's desperately trying to live in this whole new category that is the gospel. And desperately walking it out with our eyes fixed upon the king without a coin who's come to pay our debts. That in following him and giving our lives and rendering our lives to him and giving our whole selves to him, we can't just fit in clean little categories. It revolutionizes the way we live our lives completely. Let me pray for you. God, I'm thankful for this family. And I'm asking that in the midst of this, that we would leave this room not with a clear picture of do we fall in this category or this category or this or this. Father, that we would have deep convictions, but also very humble hearts. God, that we would hear this statement and be marveling with them how this king came not to collect taxes, but to pay debts and that we would give our lives back to him. We are the image bearers of God. We have sinned and taken things into our own hands and we have walked away from you and what you have come to do is far greater than we could ever do. You've paid our debts. You've made a way for us to come and give our lives wholly back to you. And as we remember that, God, I pray that this would not just change our private little spiritual lives, but it would change the way we live publicly as Christians, as followers of you. God, I'm asking that here in Tucson, they wouldn't be able to categorize this. They can't figure out what is, are they, are they a truthful? Are they a social justice? What are, what are they into? The gospel, they're into Jesus. They're into truth, they're into love, they're into grace. They're trying to faithfully live their lives before you. And Lord, I know that in order to do that, it takes so much wisdom and so much help. Lord, I don't want to just see this debate as an example of saying, wow, Jesus, I could never do that. But Lord, I know that you didn't just come to show us and give us an example. You came to be our power to interact with the world around us the way that you were. So Lord, I'm asking for us wisdom that only comes from your spirit. As we live holy before you, that we would live wise and loving, humble lives in this world. We ask these things in your name, Jesus. The church says.